We'll be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians 3. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. When I was young, I remember us sometimes gathering around the television Saturday afternoon. Turned on uh, Channel 3. Channel 3 in Mobile is ABC. We were watching ABC's Wide World of Sports. Y'all remember? Um, I was a little bit young for the Howard Cosell days. I was more in the Al Michaels era. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, but not quite old enough for, for Do You Believe in Miracles? So I, I, was, I was in that range. But one of the things that I remember most about it, uh, in fact, the thing I remember absolutely most about it was the intro and that slogan in the intro. Do you remember it? The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Ask a bunch of athletes. Take a straw poll among athletes, and you'll find probably, I'm pretty sure this is correct, you'll find that 100% of them want to win. I mean, who goes into competition desiring to lose? Uh, nobody that I know of, at least, um, unless they've got bets on the other team to win. And then, <laughs> but that's a whole other story, right? Athletes discipline themselves. They build their muscles. They control their diets. They push their bodies to the brink of intolerable pain just to win. But what if, despite having all of the natural talents, despite all of the years of persevering effort, despite all the blood, sweat, and tears pursuing that thrill of victory, an athlete just decided to throw it all away? We would think that he was crazy, unless... He found something worth more. Stand with me this morning. Philippians chapter 3. I know we just read it a few minutes ago, but stand again. It's worth reading again. Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Pray with me. Father, this is your word. Speak to us in this time. Shape us into the image of your son that we may live for you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I know you're thinking, why did we read that twice? It's worth reading more than twice. 
Paul is wrapping up a long discussion of Christian unity, a partnership together in the gospel that has been going on for the last two chapters. That's why chapter 3, verse 1, he starts with the word finally. He's not ending the book. He's ending that discussion in order to move along to a new topic. And he tells for the first time, he never before said this term rejoice with the next phrase in the Lord. He says to rejoice multiple times. But now he's recognizing that this joy is joy that's not just found in what we're doing. It's not just found in the fact that we're together. The joy is found in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord because of the partnership we have together, because of what he has done in us to change us and shape us because of the mission that he has given us to carry out. Our rejoicing is in the Lord. And then he says, it's not a burden. This isn't something, you know how sometimes your kids don't listen to you and you tell them over and over and over again and you just get exasperated of saying the same things over and over and over again. Or is that just me? I know it's not just me. Carrie does it too. So we... We say these things over and over and over again and we get tired of saying them. Paul isn't scolding them for not being joyful. He's not wagging the finger at them because they're not good partners. No, it's a joy for him to write this because he's just reminding them of what they already do and just exhorting them to do it even better. To say, write these same things to you, it's no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Basically, he's just saying, look, it's for your good, And it's a joy for me to write. But then there's an inherent danger, one that threatens to undo the partnership that has brought this Christian unity of which he's talking. Think about the athlete. What sometimes happens, especially when an athlete is winning, and not only winning, but winning, when the running back gets a 250-yard rushing day. I mean, he is all over it. When, when the tennis player is serving so hard, so fast, that their, their number one opponent in the world can't even return the serve. When an athlete gets to be that kind of level, when he is at the top of his game, what sometimes happens is that pride begins to set in. He, he might act humble for a while, but soon he begins to brag about his athletic prowess. His impeccable timing, his suave personality. But we never get proud, do we? When things are going well, we don't, we don't get proud. We're, we're not like that. We don't have that issue, do we? <laughs> yeah, sometimes we do get our head too big for our britches, don't we? Sometimes, sometimes we're so bad at this that we even brag about our screw-ups. Oh, that's nothing. You should have seen the time when I did that. I mean, it was terrible. And we're bragging about our mess-ups. There's a real danger to pride setting in. And, and then you add to that the fact that the Philippians have an outside danger as well. There's that inside danger of pride, but there's also the outside danger of a group of people, probably the Judaizers, who are trying to get them to conform to the Jewish law who are trying to take the focus off of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done and instead put it on them to boost their egos, to say, to say, look at what I have done. I have done this. I have done that. Who, who stress the outward signs of piety like circumcision, 
when you add that danger from the outside to the inside danger of pride, you got a potential disaster on your hands. And Paul sees it coming from a mile away. In fact, he's seen this train come before. He knows exactly what's about to happen. And so he begins what is most like, what, what might be, just maybe, his most emotional argument, not only in this book, but among all of his letters. He calls the Philippians with three warnings and then shows them the way that he has learned to deal with this danger of pride. Look in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three times. Three commands. Back to back to back. And they're all the same word. Look out. Look out. Look out. Your version might have observe or beware. He calls the Philippians not just to keep an eye on those folks. Not just to kind of understand what they're doing. Not just to, you know, just stay back. Don't worry about them. He's calling them to know what they are saying. What their arguments are. And to recognize the error in their ways and to stay far away from them. It would be like you teaching your son about poison ivy or rattlesnakes. You're not teaching him so that he can go investigate it. You're teaching him so he'll know enough to stay away and stay out of danger. That's what Paul wants here. He wants them to know what these enemies of the gospel are preaching because they need to steer clear of it. They need to recognize it immediately when they see it and stay away. It's know what you believe, know what your opponent believes, and know why you believe what you believe and not what your opponent believes. I said Paul is emotional here. You can, you can see it in a couple of ways. One way doesn't show in the English, unfortunately. It's just one of those translation things. But in the Greek, he uses three words that all begin with the K sound. Uh, kunas, kakus, katanomen, katatomen, I'm sorry. Kunas, kakus, katatomen. Do you hear the K? He's telling them, look out. He's alliterating. He's a preacher. (laughs) He wants them to get the point. And so he he makes these words all begin with the same letter so that they get it, so that they, they remember it, so that it can stick with them. Not only that, you can actually see it in the English in this way. Look at the progression between the three words. The first word that he calls these enemies of the gospel are dogs. This is a word, ironically, the Jews would use of the Gentiles. They're profane. The Gentiles were not allowed to come within the temple court because they were profane. Just like dogs in that day were viewed as profane. Now, I mean, these are creatures that would roam around and dig in the trash. This wasn't man's best friend. This was a dirty animal that nobody wanted around. In one sense, Paul is kind of turning the phrase because they would call the Gentiles dogs, but they're the real dogs. They're the ones who are really profaning what God had originally intended for his people. You see, it wasn't about the ritual for God. The ritual was important, but it was important in that it was a demonstration of the spiritual reality behind it. They gave up the spiritual reality in order just to have the ritual. They were profaning what God had originally designed. But not only that, 
He moves up a level. Not only are they profaning what God has done, they're doing wrong. They are evildoers. Literally, workers of evil. They're saying they're doing good. They're following God's law. Except they're not following God's law, are they? They're following the letter, but not the spirit. It's not just that they're doing things that profane. It's not just that they're unclean. They're actually working evil. But it gets even worse. Not only are they profaning what's good, not only are they claiming to do what's good while they do evil, but they are destroying the good for those who mutilate the flesh. He's playing with a word here. The word for circumcision is peritome, but he says katatome. It's the difference between um, taking a little off and cutting it all off. He does that on purpose because what he's saying is you're not following what God has said. You're destroying what God has said. Do you hear the emotional buildup in this argument that he's making? Paul isn't saying this quietly. I can picture Paul almost yelling this at the person who's writing it. I can picture this as probably something where he's got to work out exactly what to say because he wants to say some other stuff that he knows he can't. I can picture Paul turning red-faced as he's thinking about it, nostrils flaring. He's getting so mad. All the while, that Roman soldier is sitting there thinking, uh-oh, am I going to have to subdue this guy? We like to think of Jesus as this calm, peaceful figure that would walk into the middle of a hockey fight and everybody stop fighting and start hugging each other. We often think of people like Paul in the same kind of way. But the reality is... Them's fighting words that those Judaizers are using. They're destroying the gospel. And Paul has no qualms fighting that. Instead of being those who belong to God's people, these folks are mutilating the work of God and excluding themselves from God's true people. So who are God's true people? Verse 3. For we are the circumcision. There's that play on words. So you got, they are the mutilators, but we are the circumcision. The genuine circumcision, the true circumcision, because it's not a matter of whether a little bit of skin is missing or present. That's not what God was getting at. Even the prophets knew this. Even the prophets talked about the people of God as being uncircumcised of heart because they recognized that it wasn't just the physical action. It was the way we approach God as a whole. But Paul says, we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. And how do we know that? Because we worship by the Spirit of God. We don't worship by the actions of the flesh. We worship by the Spirit of God. That means it doesn't matter how, what specific rituals we're doing or not doing, nearly so much as the attitude of our hearts. We're worshiping God, God's Spirit, because His Spirit is showing us how to worship properly, and we're following Him. This isn't a matter of what we do nearly so much as why we do. See, Paul says, you, you get it. You know what it really looks like. Not only that, we glory in Christ Jesus. We don't glory in our flesh. We don't glory in who we are. We don't glory in what we've done. We glory in the one who's worth glorying. We put no confidence in the flesh. Our worship, our glory, our trust, all lie in and derive from Jesus Christ. They belong to no other. That's how we know we are truly God's people. Because it's all about God and what he is in and what he is doing. 
and what he is going to do. It's not about us. Speaking of that confidence, Paul says, let me show you how this has worked in my life. He, he, he turns them to himself. And he says, essence, essentially, he says, I could be a winner. I could be a winner. I mean, I've got all the markings of it. Listen to verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Look, I could, call, I could have confidence in the flesh. We don't put confidence in the flesh, but I could if I wanted to. In fact, if anyone else, he says, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You think you are so good off, let me tell you about my stats. James has to do a project where he's taking an individual in history and he's building a, 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 a card, like a, a playing card, a baseball card, that type of thing, on that individual. And what he has to do is he has to put some stats on there. What kinds of things this person has done? You know, like a baseball card has the stats. You know, how many, how many hits they got at bats and their batting percentage, their singles, doubles, triples, you know, home runs, RBIs, all that kind of stuff. For pitchers, it would be strikeouts and, and wins and um, innings pitched and that kind of stuff. You know, all those kinds of stats. And I got to tell you, Paul has all the stats. This guy on paper is a sure bet to win. He has the pedigree. Look at verse 5. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day. Every good Jew, every good Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day. Abraham and Isaac were too old when they were circumcised to do this on the eighth day. That's when God instituted it. But everyone since Isaac, every Jew since Isaac has been circumcised on the eighth day. It's part of God's law. At least every born Jew. Of the people of Israel, I've got the lineage. I've got the heritage of it. Of the tribe of Benjamin. You know who else was in the tribe of Benjamin? A king named Saul. Hey, wait a minute. Saul, isn't that Paul's Hebrew name? Yes, it is. He's got the pedigree for it. He's even got the name of a Jewish king. Now, now I would think you'd want to be named after a different king, but that's just me. Saul wasn't exactly the creme de la creme of Jewish kings. But Benjamin... Benjamin was a tribe among the tribes. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. There, there are phrases like this in the Bible, holy of holies. We have a French phrase, creme de la creme, the cream of the cream. In other words, the best of the best. Among the Hebrews, I was a real Hebrew. Not only does he have the pedigree, he has the performance. Verse 6, as to, uh, at the end of verse 5, I'm sorry, as to the law, a Pharisee. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about people who knew the law. You want to talk about the real experts of the law. They were Pharisees. The Pharisees knew it backwards and forwards. They knew it so well. They, could, they were the ones you went to. You got a question about the law, the Pharisee could answer it. If there was any question on whether you should or you shouldn't, it was the Pharisee you went to. Much like if your kid is sick, you take them to the doctor. When you don't know what to do about a particular situation, you go to a Pharisee because they know the law. As to the law, a Pharisee. In fact, Acts 22.30 tells us that he sat under the seat of Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis of the time. And don't question his zeal either. Verse 6 says, To zeal, a persecutor of the church. Oh, and he's got the piety too. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
He has the pedigree. He has the performance. He has the piety. I always picture Paul like a first century Muhammad Ali. I'm so pretty. I'm so pretty. I'm so fast. I almost get the picture. <laughs> I'm just thinking Muhammad Ali in the first century building a church. It, it's just, it's a funny sight in my mind. If there's any individual who could say that he could earn God's favor by what he does, by who he is, by, by having, that, that, that would deserve to have confidence in the flesh. If there's anybody that we could say would be a winner before God, Paul is certain that it's himself. I could be a winner, Paul tells the Philippians, but I choose to be a loser for Christ. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here is the superstar athlete leaving all of the advantages and accolades behind. The wealthy CEO turning in his resignation letter from the company that he brought to prominence. Here's the world-famous musician putting away the guitar that got him so many number one hits and platinum albums. What can make someone who is destined to win give it all up? How could Paul, with a straight face, consider every advantage, count every profit, convert every treasure into loss? In a word, Christ. Remember, I said of that athlete, We'd think him mad if he did something like that, unless he found something worth more. Paul is willing to give up the thrill of victory because he's found something worth more. In fact, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That word indeed, but rather also. It's actually three words in Greek. He's saying, verse 7, counting the gain as loss, that's just the tip of the iceberg. No, even more than that, I count every single thing, whether it's something that I have been proud of or not, whether it's something, my, part of my pedigree, part of my performance, part of my piety, it doesn't matter. It's all lost. Everything is lost. Compared to what? Compared to the surpassing worth. If you went to the bank and you gave them a dollar and said, put this in my account, they gave you the receipt back with a balance on it, and they had instead put a million dollars into the account. You would think, let me go find another dollar, right? <laughs> right? The dollar, that, 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 that wouldn't happen, right? The dollar is worth a dollar. So whether it's in cash or in the account, it's still worth a dollar. Not worth a lot, but it's still worth a dollar, right? But if you could trade a dollar for a million dollars, who's going to take the trade? Some of y'all don't want to raise your hand. It's okay, the camera's on me. So <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. Why? Because it's worth more. But not only is it worth more, it's worth far more, right? Now take the million dollars and trade it again, and <laughs> there you go. That's, that's how you do it. The fact is, Paul has found something worth so much more than everything he's giving up that he doesn't mind giving up everything. Jesus tells a parable. A man buys a field. In the field, he finds this pearl of great price, or no, no, he's in the field. He finds the pearl. So he goes and sells everything he has to buy the field, right? You see, it's worth so much more that everything I have is not worth as much as that. 
So when Paul looks at his life, when, when he looks at the pedigree that he has, when he looks at the performance as a good Jew, as a Pharisee, as a, as a persecutor of the church, as he looks at the piety, the righteousness under the law that he has, he recognizes that it's worthless compared to Christ. In fact, it's so worthless he calls it rubbish. Rubbish. There's another word for that. Manure. It's, it's not a trash. It's stinky trash. Go put that in the dirt. Grow some flowers, something. He said, it is worthless to me because I found something that's worth so much. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is a long sentence, but it's so full of doctrine. Paul's main point is when he looks at Christ, when he considers the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, the loss of all things, pales in comparison to what he gains. So he loses all things seeking to gain Christ, seeking to be found in him. Being found in him, being in Christ, produces a righteousness that does not come from him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from all. A righteousness that can never be good enough. A righteousness that is filthy rags. A righteousness that doesn't amount to a hill of beans because it's still tainted by sin. You do the right things, but you do them with the wrong motives. It's still wrong. I saw a cartoon. It's a joke. Um, It had two buttons. One said right place, wrong time, and one said wrong place, right time. That's us trying to be righteous under the law. We're either doing the right thing the wrong way or we're doing the, the right way, but we're doing the wrong thing. We can't get it right. We cannot get it right in and of ourselves. And so the righteousness that comes from the law is not a genuine righteousness. It's not pure righteousness because we can never meet all the expectations of the law. If you lie, you've broken the law. If you kill, you've broken the law. If you hate a brother in your heart, you've broken the law. We can't do it. And because we can't do it, Paul says, I don't want a righteousness of my own. Because it ain't real righteousness. No, instead I want a righteousness that comes from God. Being in Christ produces a righteousness that is based on faith. Faith in Christ that depends on faith. It's all dependent on God. It's not based on what I do. It's based on what He has done and me trusting in Him. All I do is believe. That's my work. You're saved by works. But that's the only work. Putting faith in Christ is it. And even that we need God's help with. And that righteousness produces in us a closer and better walk with Christ that I may know him, verse 10. That I may know him. You see, Paul has seen Jesus. Now he's willing to give up everything to know him more. Oh, I kind of knew him before. But even my first glimpse showed me that he was worth giving up everything. And if that's just the first glimpse, imagine once you get to know him. It would be like, getting a bank vault, when you first open the vault, all you see is a stack of gold right in front of you. There's no telling what else is behind the gold. Paul's attitude 
Paul's estimation of himself and others, his, his life's purpose, everything he does, everything he says, everything he ends, he is, hinges on Christ. And not only know him, but the power of his resurrection, a power that works itself out throughout all of the aspects of our lives. It enables Paul to know Christ fully and completely, and it changes everything. That resurrection includes sufferings, sufferings that are bound to the mission, like a horse in a carriage. The carriage doesn't work without the horses. The resurrection of Christ does not have its full power without the sufferings of Christ along with it. In fact, how do you think the resurrection gets its power? It's from those sufferings. You see, the struggles that we face are not are not blemishes on God's perfect will. They are not overlooks. They are not mishaps. They are not mistakes. They are the means by which God works his power in us. All of this. Oh, yeah. And if we suffer with Christ, we become like him in his death. Don't you know we're going to become like him in his resurrection too? That, that may in verse 11, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead, it just hasn't happened yet. That's all that means. He's not questioning whether it'll happen. He's just questioning when. All of this is Paul's way of saying that we, the people of God, cannot put our confidence in ourselves. We cannot put it in our actions. We cannot put it in our notions of who we are. We cannot put it in our list of achievements or honors. We cannot put our confidence in the opinions of others about us. We cannot put our confidence in the rituals we perform, the piety we demonstrate the pedigree into which we are born. Now, the only sure place for our confidence is Christ. If we are to be winners, we must lose all. So that begs the question, what are you still striving for? What thrill of victory still holds your heart captive? What crowns or trophies sit on the shelf of your heart? What title or badge of honor do you still wear on your chest? What is it that you pride yourself in? time to lose it. It's time to cast the crowns down at Jesus' feet. It's time to surrender. Not just your failures, your screw-ups, not just your sins, but your successes, your accolades, your own righteousness. It's time to give up every gain and count them all as loss, because compared to Christ, they're worthless anyway. Father, as we move into this invitation, I pray that we would forsake every gain. It's crazy. I've got a business mind, and I think of gains as something worth getting. But compared to you, there is no gain. You are the only gain. So, Father, we surrender everything. Lord, as we sing this invitation hymn, we count everything as lost compared to you. Help us to give up whatever we're holding on to for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a cappella, but we are going to sing this hymn. I'm sorry? We have words. We just don't have music. So stand with us. Let's turn to page 596. 596. I'm going to be here at the front. You come on. Oh, to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will never trust him in his presence daily live I surrender all I surrender
my blessed Savior, I surrender.